bum bum bottom 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 bum
well as bite you. Uh, he'll mess up your life by throwing a stick of dynamite under your car. He, he doesn't just have the tools of being a vampire. He likes playing around with man's tools also. I also experienced a lot of pop culture things through the Muppets. So there are also yes. the Muppets versions of vampires. So there's, of course, Count Von Count. Yes. Who sucks numbers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Vincent Price's episode so of the good. Muppets. So scary to a child. <laughs> um, and also, I think he uh, did episodes of Sesame Street as well. So I have like a visceral sense memory of seeing Kermit the Frog with yeah. fangs, yeah. which like I had, like I love the Muppets. They raised me. I would not be the person that I am without the Muppets. Not the first time that they've come up on this podcast. But it's not. It was not unusual for me to have nightmares of all of the Muppets, like having teeth. Oh, like, like having, vampire teeth. Like vampire teeth really? or human teeth. Oh, human teeth. And, oh, uh, yeah, that's just, worse. Whoa. Way worse. Yeah, so bad. Do you have any like childhood memories that just randomly come back to you just for like no reason? Not about vampire Muppets or Muppets with Nashers. So I have a memory that is almost perfectly preserved of me walking into Taekwondo having had the previous night a Muppet Nightmare, Muppets with Teeth. Oh, okay. And um, it just tainted my whole day. Yeah. I No fun in the dojong for Lisa that day. Well, I'm going to be thinking about Muppet with Teeth all day. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, I think I properly started getting into vampires when I read Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. And then Salem's Lot led me to the Anne Rice novels, the Lestat stuff. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola film from the 90s, when that came out and I saw that, I found that movie to be beautiful, creepy, and to my young, you know, pubescent brain and body, very sensual. Mm. And I remember going, there is something about this that is very uncomfortable and compelling. And that's when I started to like, understand the vampire mythology as this cocktail of horror and lust. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Because vampires as a metaphor is like, they're, they're meant to be just walking self-indulgence. Yeah. So it's this very Victorian idea of if you lose your soul and you get detached from God's grace, there's nothing to stop you from just having all of the things that you want. So having very sexy, sexy sex <laughs> or feeding your need to completion or they're often associated with finery, with riches, because without morals, you can just have everything you want. And to a Victorian, that's a very scary idea. That's why there's the whole thing of like being turned, right? So a vampire has the ability to change you. So if you allow a vampire in, if you invite a vampire into your home, into your person, you will then turn into this kind of feeding frenzied monster. Now, that idea is not always shared by every writer taking on the vampire mythology. The God's grace thing in particular, the damnation thing, is removed from a lot of these stories. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the Twilight expert, but Twilight doesn't deal with any of that stuff really at all. Oh, no, it absolutely does. Oh, does it? But in kind of 
a um, agnostic sort of way. Okay. So um, within the Twilight family, there is the father, Carlisle, and then, of course, there is Edward. So Carlisle is the father of the family, and he believes that vampire souls are redeemable because he's like a doctor. He's been saving people. He's been using his vampire superpower for good. But Edward believes that he is detached from God and he is soulless. But there's no, it's just like human beings and God. There's just no evidence either way. It's just kind of like what your fifis tell you. But the movies don't mess with that at all, right? Like, does that come up at all in the films? It must. I have mostly blanked the films out. Uh Uh-huh. We watched, so when Twilight was coming out, you and I were working at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, it was it was an important book for booksellers. Absolutely. And by the time the last book came out, there were just end caps filled yeah. with these Twilight books because we overordered. That's what I suspect. So um one day I was just like, I'm just going to read them. And I read them all in like nine days and it was right as the films were coming out. Twilight books are very they they're kind of like an entryway romance novel where it's like all of the teenage lust, but none of the like icky, icky stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You and I were dating, seeing the movies with you sitting next to you felt very vulnerable and (laughs) not good. So I, I, and, and extremely cringy. It's like one, one thing reading something cringy alone in the bed of your parents' house with, with like, your blanket pulled over your head. Like that's one thing, but like sitting in a theater next to someone, you're like, I'm a cool person. You might want to marry me. And then like watching twilight on the big screen. It's a little embarrassing. (laughs) Well, I recall you wanting to not watch the rest of the sequels. And I made you watch every single one of the sequels because once Brad starts a franchise, he finishes that franchise. You are, you are a vampire for franchises. You watch them to completion. That's right. And you, have recently reread the Twilight books because you have always talked about how you would fix the Twilight books. I see Twilight as something extremely punch-upable. And listener, if you want to hear more about Lisa and her relationship with Twilight, she, along with Anne and Lexi from the Comics Collective podcast, have already recorded an epic conversation about the Twilight franchise together. And the Comics Collective is going to post it in their feed. And at some point next week or whenever. We have to arrange it. The arranges have not been made. We have to schedule. We have to schedule. But at some point, we're also going to post that conversation in our feed. So you're going to hear a lot more about Lisa and her relationship with Twilight. But I did think that was an interesting place to be in when we were reading Alex Segura's Blood Oath book. Yeah, because I was absolutely at the height of this resurgence of love for Twilight. And so I had literally just finished the Twilight series. I had finished Anne Rice's book, and I was like thirsting for (laughs) more vampires. And then here comes Blood Oath. Yes. So here's the Blood Oath setup that you can read on Alex Segura's website, link in the show notes. 1922... New York, the peak of prohibition. Hazel Crenshaw just wants to be left alone to tend to her farm, to care for her younger sister, and to run her business. But her business is inescapably tangled up with the New York gangs that will eventually coalesce into the mafia and a new unknown partner. 
When the Crenshaw farm is attacked, Hazel must not only defend her home, she must cope with the realization that her flirtation with the other side of the law might also put her in the crosshairs of something else, something much more sinister. Now, the word vampire is never mentioned in that little uh, blurb, but vampires are clearly on the cover. It's called Blood Oath. It's not a spoiler to say that it's a vampire comic. And Prohibition is the perfect setting for vampires because Prohibition was all about going like, people can't handle their desires. People yeah. can't do things in moderation. So we have to take alcohol off the table <laughs> for people. But we want we want to relax. We want that nice... Um, poison in our systems <laughs> and so yeah vampires and so then to use like vampires to oversee that mm -hmm. and alex segura comes up with a really interesting addition to the prohibition story and vampire mythology that i really really like and we talk about a little bit i do encourage you to read the comic first before hearing this conversation you don't necessarily have to but I think you'll enjoy the chat a lot more because Lisa and I do get into the nitty gritty of that edition. We talk around some plot points. We definitely don't spoil the major stuff. Yeah. But Alex Segura is a lot like Lisa. He is a thematically focused creator. And Lisa wants to dig into that a little bit. And, you know, you got to discuss some of the plot stuff to open it up. You'll also get to hear Alex Segura's very diplomatic chill that comes over the pod waves when I bring up Twilight. He <laughs> he is not a Twilight fan, that's but that's okay. okay. He was very judgment-free zone. <laughs> he was. But at the same time, I was just like, oh man, I'm I I I shouldn't have brought it up. Lisa, you get too defensive when you talk about your love of Twilight. You should own your love. Own your love. Never I'm be ashamed. On it. Of the geek stuff you love. I don't believe in guilty pleasure. No, I they don't, don't exist. You should never feel guilty about your pleasure. But at the same time, I, yikes. I love that you love Twilight. Thank you. Now, we also talk about his other comic book, The Black Ghost. The second volume has actually just published from Dark Horse Comics. It started off with Comixology Originals. And I'll just read the plot synopsis of The Black Ghost as well. Please do. Six months after the events of the first arc, we find Lara in a different spot, sober and focused on her job at the Creighton Courier, covering an increasingly corrupt CCPD. But that's all about the change. A letter from a dead man, Marco Nava, the original black ghost, and her brother Thomas's best friend derails Lara's plans and sends her sprinting down a rabbit hole to find out more about the man who wore the black ghost mask before he was gunned down. There are like shared thematic elements between these two stories. Lara is a recovering alcoholic and she has now overindulged in all of the, her extracurricular activities mm, yeah. to kind of fill the void substance abuse held in her life. So I see that, and she's a fairly green vigilante, so yes. she's not like really awesome at it. So <laughs> I personally see Lara barreling towards some kind of new, different rock bottom of just like doing too much. Yeah, uh, Black Ghost takes 
journalism and vigilanteism and smashes them together and also has a conversation about substance abuse. And uh, I, I, I think it's a unique take on a genre that most of us read every week in a variety of different ways. And it's rare that you find something that feels fresh. And the Black Ghost totally does. Lara is a character where it's like, you can do so much good in your day job with the journalism. That is clearly where she got her 10,000 hours. Yes. And it's just like, you can leave the vigilanteism up to somebody else. Yeah, but she can't. But she can't. But she can't. Uh, so yes, please read The Black Ghost and Blood Oath, preferably before listening to this conversation. But, but don't turn this off. If you've already committed to listening to it, please do. <laughs> uh, and then just enjoy the conversation. And I think you will be turned on to the comics afterwards anyway. So uh, here you go. Without further ado, Alex Segura. Alex, welcome to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. I am so happy to be here. I feel like we've been chatting about this for such a long time. It's a thrill. This is definitely like a long time coming, having sure. this chat with you. I'm so excited. Um, I wanted to start with the dynamics of juggling so many projects at the same time and having so many collaborators at the same time, because I imagine that it's like dating multiple people and being like, hey, I'd love to get together. I have these other plans. No, I promise our project is number one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is a lot of, of juggling. And I think... Um... I think it's where my background as a marketing person or publishing person kind of seeing the other side of the operation helps because a lot of these books, and I don't say this to discredit anyone, even the editors on the books, a lot of my job usually is collecting the team kind of like, hey, Rob Hart, you know, we get along, we're friends, we've written novellas together, like let's do a comic together. And I worked with Joe Isma on the Archies, and so he would be great for this book. And I know Heather Antos, and I'd love to work with her. So it's kind of like you're building your your dream team for different things, you know, you know, depending on what the needs are of of the project. And um, it's it's fun. It's kind of like fantasy football with with your talented friends, which is great. <laughs> And is it just a coincidence that you have two series coming to an end, you know, Blood Oath and the Black Ghost hitting their fifth issue here? Uh, or is is it just the way or was it or was it planned? Coincidence or a plan? Yeah, I would say it's coincidence. I think I don't want to speak for comiXology and how they schedule things like I think we had those books done pretty well in advance. And what's funny is that they came out together and everyone was like, how are you doing all that? I'm like, <laughs> it's done. I mean, I, I did it already. We did it already. But um, I think also um, they didn't want to have like too much stuff coming out all at once. You know, Scott Snyder's stuff was so much the focus as it should have been for a, a stretch. And then they did a fun little Segura week. <laughs> where they had Blood Oath and Black Ghost launched together that was really flattering. And I was like, is this a joke or is this real? Is this happening? <laughs> um, and so I kind of like that they come out together because it gives me a chance to plug them both. They they are siblings or distant cousins in some way, even though they're like genre-wise so different. But um, yeah, I think I think it was intentional on Comixology's part. It was neat to see from my perspective. They are uh, extremely different yeah. uh, genre-wise. At the same time, they're both kind of doing their own genre mashups, right? You know, yeah. like Blood Oath is the vampire bootlegger comic and uh, Black Ghost is the, you know, all the president's men journalism meets vigilanteism. Uh, why, you know, what's the appeal of mashing all those genres together? I guess, you know, sometimes you write, 
what's the saying is you write the book you want to read that nobody else can write. And so for me with Black Ghost, Black Ghost was my first creator owned comic ever, you know, in terms of the first season. And I really wanted to write a love letter to those street level vigilante heroes that I liked as a kid, but also adding elements that I enjoy from like PI fiction or thriller, political thrillers and things like that. So like the journalistic, you know, recovering alcoholic protagonist, what happens if you you kind of shoehorn that PI into a vigilante costume because they are, they're running parallel paths. And so I felt like that was interesting to me. Um, and Blood Oath, I mean, I'm not a huge horror person despite writing a horror comic. Um, so I needed that um, grounding in noir and crime. And so the idea, the high concept Rob and I used with each other was it's Boardwalk Empire meets Vampires, which mm. was really fascinating to me and kind of got me excited about working on the book. The idea that there's this like, even though the book is set before the five families of the mafia are established, the running gag we had is like, what if there was a sixth family and it was vampires and there was this, this partnership between the existing mobs and gangs and this secret or other secret, more secret organization uh, to kind of uh, ferry their, their blood around, which um, so yeah, I guess my, the shorthand version of that is you get yourself hooked and you hopefully that will get other people interested. It's a very selfish approach to <laughs> crafting fiction. <laughs> uh one of the delights of Blood Oath is this element that you add to the mythology where the alcohol preserves the blood. And uh, if you if you want to have a vast storage of blood for your vampire clan, you need these gangsters to, you know, house it for you in the alcohol. And it's now prohibition. And so prohibition has been kind of created to halt the vampires in a way. It's my theory. That's my theory. That is the reason of the prohibition is because somebody in government discovered that alcohol was feeding vampires. Like that's Lisa's writing side. side yeah, no, I love it. I, I think that's really useful. Yeah, no, I think we wanted to weave the vampire mythos into actual history and see mm -hmm. how they could fit in together. And, and this idea that, you know, obviously the vampires are much more powerful than the mobsters, but they need each other. And so when Jotham breaks the blood oath and creates chaos, it's not just vampires getting mad and, and taking it out on, on humans. It really disrupts the ecosystem for both of them. So on a big like macro level, it's interesting. But then we wanted to focus on how it affects someone like Hazel and her family and her like begrudging criminal career. Like she doesn't really want to be a bootlegger, but she mm -hmm. has to to like preserve her farm and, you know, uh, take care of her sister and, and Walt. And um, and I think that that that's the crux of the story for us. I find Hazel to be a really interesting character just because even before prohibition started, she was feeling like life was not like life was not treating her fairly where mm. she ended up, her parents died. And then she ends up with this entire farm and taking care, care of Geraldine. And like, uh, one of the things she says is like, uh, you know, she didn't want to break the law, but every other card is like stacked against her. And so by the time vampires are, part of the action she is like unflappable she's like yeah. of course there are vampires <laughs> what else can you throw at me yeah i think uh i think yeah we really i find characters like that fascinating that are worn down by the world because i don't know if it is having like young children or just like being of a certain age or just like kind of beaten down and like <laughs> like what else can you throw at me today and um I, I i like hazel because she is world weary and she's had a lot of tough experiences but she's still like someone you want to root for like you know and and she's not like an easy she's not a pushover and she's not like you know, in the way that Carmen from Secret Identity, it's her first time investigating a crime. Like Hazel's like the other end of the spectrum. She is 
uh, she's seen it all. And so like even something like vampire, she's like, okay, I, I can process that. Like, let's, let's see what's next. I love that. She still has some skepticism of possibilities left over for when a nun shows up where yeah. she's just like, okay, <laughs> I believe in vampires, but what you believe in is weird and impossible. You know Yeah, what I Like mean? I can see vampires. I can't see what you <laughs> believe in. Yeah. And Machado is like a really, that was a fun character to create because um, I'm a big outliner, so I like to plot out the story, and Rob does too. And then we realized we needed some kind of third party to show up and be that linchpin between the mythos that we didn't want to get too expository. Like, once upon a time, vampires did this, but we wanted someone to relay that to Hazel. And I thought, well, well who better than, like, a, you know, an assassin nun, like, <laughs> hell-bent on killing vampires? It just felt, like, really cool visually for Joe, but also... We could tap into like Cuban history and and just you know just tie it all in together in a fun way. I thought, and she kind of comes out of left field. She she does. Is there any other like little tidbits about her inspiration and and coming up with that character? Um, you know, I just did a little basic research on the era, especially at Cuba at the time, and the name is a hat tip to like a Cuban figure. Um, and um, I think visually we just thought it would be interesting, and Joe was all for it. And um, I I think you know. There is the motif of like the powerful battling nun, which we wanted to push back a little bit against. Like she is a badass and she's very capable and talented, but she's not like there's nothing. She's not the top cow character. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's not like it's not like a gratuitous nun. It's she's she's very much of the cloth and very into her life choices, but she's got to take out these vampires. That's just like an added wrinkle in her <laughs> mo. I did appreciate that. Like she is jaded, but still devout. Where yeah. Hazel is jaded and she's now disbelieving in all things. It's like two uh, kind of uh, polar opposites of a similar crisis. Yeah, definitely. And and I think, I mean, it kind of shows you how important it is to have just something to believe in. Like Hazel feels very like worn out and, and empty in some ways. Like she's got nothing pulling her. She's just kind of chugging along, which, and I don't mean that as a disservice. I find that fascinating. That's why she's the protagonist. But Machado definitely has a higher power that's like, driving her you know we're comic book couples counseling we're yes. obsessed with relationships <laughs> uh, one of the surprises that uh, we both encountered with blood oath early on is how the book starts off with this pairing of hazel and walt no oh I mean, yeah hazel and frankie uh, yeah sorry yeah. Hazel and Frankie not Hazel and Walt yeah yeah but then you know the vampires show up and then you have to solve your sister's kidnapping with her kind of wimpy boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> like that creates an interesting character dynamic between the two. Yeah. So I was right. Well, that's what I was getting. I was getting to like Hazel and Walt. Yeah. The ultimate. Skip the steps because the yeah. steps are what All right. makes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frankie, yeah, yeah. Frankie is definitely part of that journey, but, um, but the yeah, surprise but... is Hazel and Walt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a fun dynamic to write, not in the necessarily romantic way, but just a mentoring way. Like in a, Hazel almost adopts Walt as like her, hapless little brother that she has to protect and we do give him a moment later on in the series where he steps on and up in a meaningful way mm -hmm. and i have to give heather antos our editor a uh a high five for saving walt because at one point we were just mm -hmm. kind of like oh he's really annoying but we we found a way to make him interesting to us which is always like the challenge you know you don't you don't want you don't want characters to just feel like cutouts like oh he's the wimpy sidekick like he, he finds some hopeful redemption as the series concludes what is the like age difference between Hazel and Walt? Because he like Walt, the interesting choice that he made was like the scene where he's like, hey, Hazel, like, 
I think that you probably have this and I'm yeah. probably <laughs> in the way. And like, that's like a very like, it feels Katie, little brother like, yeah. to do to go like, okay, I'm going to leave this to the adults because I'm going to go I'm play gonna... in my room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say it's about a five to seven year difference, yeah, which, sense. which I think is huge when you're kids, as you're older, it's less, less of a de- big deal, but I think it's still significant at this point. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing to me is, well, okay, before we get that, I, I, I want to drill down a little bit and Heather saying like, there's something interesting with Walt here. What what was that conversation actually like? What did what did Heather see there to encourage you, uh, well, to encourage all of you to mm-hmm. keep that character around? Yeah, I think it's 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 a micro example of how Heather is as an editor and that she's a great story person. Like she'll she is great at kind of, you know, Rob and I will be like, oh, this is good. We'll turn it in. And she's like, well, you can do better. Like you can kind of amplify this, like make this arc more meaningful, like this beat should fall here. Um, and I think she she engages with the talent in such an honest way, like she knows story so well. So with in the in the case of Walt. I just think she, I think she just didn't want him to be wasted. You know, I think as readers, you are with him for four or five issues. And if by the end of the series, he's still like wimpy Walt and hasn't like had a journey, that's you feel you'd probably feel a little shortchanged. So I think that was really the focus of what she was saying. And also with the conclusion of the fifth issue, which I will not spoil, but yeah. the dynamics of that little family have changed significantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that Walt being party to that is going to be a fascinating read and, and yeah, how he, he responds to that situation. Yeah. His, his world is definitely uprooted on every level. Like, you know, the entire mission is quote unquote successful in theory. And then the rules change like right after. So that was, I think we had that last scene in place before we had most of the plot. Like we knew this is where we were going. And so a lot of the journey was planting seeds for that. How is it collaborating with another writer coming up with these stories? Is it like a kind of like a ping pong match or is it like, what is it like? Are you in the the same room? What's the process? Um, With Rob, Rob hadn't written comics before. And I know he, I mean, he's a huge comic fan. So we had, this is in the before times we had lunch and, and chatted about what we wanted to write about. And kind of, we honed in on this boardwalk empire meets vampires idea. And so a lot of it, I think, has been me kind of mentoring him in terms of the tools of writing comics, not so much narrative and story. And um, we would just alternate. We would take turns. Like I would outline the first, we, we did an outline together of the whole five issues. And then we would take turns. Um, he would do the page. We, we did page breakdown. So sometimes with artists that I've known a long time, we'll do Marvel style, which is basically, we just send a detailed plot to the artist and let them do what they're great at. As opposed to me saying, this is, has to be in panel one. And this is panel two. We break it down enough that, the artist can follow it by panel, but usually what I tell an artist is like, you know better than me. Like you should do whatever you think is best as long as we hit these notes. And so I'd worked with Joe so many times on the Archies and as an editor at Archie, you know, working with him on Junkhead the Hunger and things like that, that I had every confidence that he would do well. So it was a very comfortable situation, I think, for someone like Rob to come into that the dynamic creatively were two other collaborators that were pretty well known to each other. So he was able to, I guess, get his sea legs. And so we would alternate, like I would plot and then he would script over the plot and then we would kind of alternate from there. And and obviously the best thing about a collaborator is when you don't have ego about notes. So Mm. if he changed something 
unless I felt really strongly about it, I would be fine with it and vice versa, because I think we, we both have journalism backgrounds too. So we're used to being edited and our words changed. And it's, it's less about like the sanctity of my word choice and more about like getting the best work done. Does Rob have the bug now? Is it just going to be comics? Yeah, from now on? I think he's, yeah, I think he's in it, which is good. Hopefully we'll do more blood out too. Yeah. Uh, do you have more blood oath questions? No, I'm Lisa, good. Should we move over to the black ghost? I'm so excited two? about right. black ghost as well. <laughs> Yay. Uh, black ghost season two, you know, we're, we're coming in and um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking Dominguez. Yes. Laura Dominguez. Yeah. Laura. Laura. I, was like, I could not remember her first name. Okay. I'm going to edit all that out. No worries. <laughs> uh, in Black Ghost season two, we're coming in with Laura and obviously she's in a di- very different place than where she was in season one, but she's still dealing with addiction. Although maybe the addiction has become the black ghost suit. And yeah. that conversation is very forward in the book. Uh, can you talk about developing that narrative arc a little bit for her? Yeah, I think the big thing, um for monica and i was to show that alcoholism and addiction is not a switch you just flip off like it's something that you need to maintain and work on for the rest of your life and so that journey from laura being in the throes of like early like recovery and relapse to a more kind of plateaued stable recovery we wanted to show what those problems were like and how she maybe shifted her priorities. And it's clear that, yeah, she, she is now addicted to being the black ghost, but not hopefully not in a cheesy way where it feels like um, heavy handed or, or overly like emphasized. Like she's, she's just struggling to figure out what her new life is like and whether it's, you know, she's doing better at work, she's doing better with her relationships, but is she, because now she's like dressing up like this black kid ghost character and and putting her life at risk and maybe that's not really the healthiest path either and I I think we also wanted to play with the idea that we're not writing IP for someone you know we can do things that you wouldn't see with like a daredevil or a batman in terms of like long-running characters like we can end the series if we want to I'm not saying it ends but um we can change her status quo more powerfully i guess in the short term and so i wanted to explore that and have her really like assess like is this something i want to do and what is the best way for me to help creighton and help my city and help ernesto and help my supporting cast and and be a better laura does the inspiration for adding the uh, addictive behavior to her character is that um personal is that a personal inspiration Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, without getting too far into it, I think we all have our demons and things that we grapple with. And so I I wanted to be true to that. And so we spent a lot of time making sure it was genuine, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of there's I think there's a lot of Laura from me and from Monica in in different regards, for sure. Like what I love about uh, Laura is that she's actually at this point in her vigilante career kind of shitty at it. Like (laughs) she like she's a like. She knows how to use her reporter skills. And that's really where um, her 10,000 hours went. And so now she is overextending herself into also doing this vigilantism. And a lot of it is really not going that great. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm so glad you caught that because I think Monica and I have a, a real thrill, like writing this messy vigilante. Like she's very smart. She's very capable. Like you said, a great journalist. Um, she's good at the detective part because she's a good journalist, but the vigilante stuff, not so much. And I, I, as a kid or as a young reader, I would always get annoyed when a new superhero would start and be like, 
uh, not a cop or anything with that similar background and just take over and just be like, I'm the new Dr. Fate and I'm great. You know, like not <laughs> yeah. necessarily Dr. Fate, but you know what I mean? Like they would just take over as a legacy hero. And we wanted to play with that, with the idea of legacy and taking over the mantle of another hero and being a normal person with flaws and foibles and addictions and challenges. And like, how does she overcome that and be a competent black ghost? And I think that's the journey of the second season. Yeah, that's I, oh you go well that's something that lisa and i talk about all the time like our favorite superhero stories are you know, those are the stories where the superheroes are constantly failing but they find ways to keep going and you go back to like the classic marvel kirby ditko yeah. lee era and that's what the appeal of you know spider-man and the x-men the fantastic four was is they were struggling to get things done yeah, I mean, I was a Spider-Man kid growing up. Like the idea that Peter Parker need, couldn't pay rent and had to buy Aunt May's medicine and was standing up Gwen Stacy, like all that stuff like spoke to me as like a nerdy kid. Like, you know, how does he do it and put on the costume? And I think a lot of that really filters into the Black Ghost. Well, when I think about Lara, she is, during the day, she's a reporter. She also teaches night classes. Yeah. She also has a girlfriend and she's a vigilante. Like, and she me, has Ernesto. She's gonna take care of that kid. So, um, like she, like to me, I see her barreling towards something really terrible and dangerous yeah. because you know she might like she might not be drunk anymore, but she's got to be like exhausted. She's extended. Yeah, and I think you see that's a fairly not to get all you know, big picture about it, but it's a fairly common thing with addiction too. Like when someone's in recovery, they kind of overexert themselves to make up for lost time in many ways. And so I think we're seeing that with Laura, like we're seeing her try to make up for this period that she thought she quote unquote lost when she really should just kind of take a breath and and do what she wants to do and do what she's best at. Um, and I think that'll play out at the end of season two. And also hopefully if we get another season, because I think we have at least one more arc left. Uh, you know, again, not we're not going to spoil anything but you, you got to have a third season yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that last page definitely makes you feel like you need to turn again to yeah. 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 yeah i had to double check i was like wait is this the fifth issue <laughs> it is yeah 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 no i love cliffhangers i mean i know we're in a trade mentality which is great like i love reading collections but as a I just love the idea of like, I have to get the next issue. And even if we're not even having even started the third season but we want people to have some anticipation for it at uh, without getting into spoilers, yeah. what I really want to talk about is her relationship with Molly. Mm -hmm. And um, her girlfriend, Molly, sees, ha has supported her through the first stage of her recovery. She has the concerns that Lisa has yeah. for Laura. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, how do I say it without spoiling anything? Um, Laura does decide to streamline her life yes. towards the end of this series. And... I think that um, that maybe it's a bad. I, I I think that Lara has made a bad choice. But is it even her choice? Yes, it is her choice. Yes, it is her choice because Molly is right. Yeah, Molly is right, and I think that was our guiding light whenever writing the character. Like she is the kind of conscience of the book, and she's always right. And I think she mean she really is protective of Laura to a point. And I think you see that in many partnerships that have issues you know there's one maybe there's one partner that helps the other one to the point of hurting themselves and i think molly realized that she was hurting herself by striving so hard to get laura to do something she was clearly not capable of doing yet and so the big issue is you know i think you're putting yourself at risk by dressing up as this character and i think you're also 
replacing this terrible thing with this other still potentially terrible thing. Maybe it's not as directly like hurtful to your health in the short term, but it could be like you're one like bullet away from being gone. Like, um, did you guys catch the homage of the like title pages or like no, no one's caught it yet? And, and it's OK if you haven't. The answer is no. I, yeah, I would love to come in and be like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> no, I'm looking no, we, now. Even though it's kind of a flawed, it's it's definitely not aged as well. We were, I was reading Daredevil Born Again a lot. And so there's a lot of, like, if you look at those opening pages, like I talked to George and Monica did too. And I was like, let's try to go for something thematic here that can at least, you know, with the flash forwards, the flashbacks, I mean, that kind of evoke different um, steps in the recovery process. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully people notice it. Maybe it was almost like too, too subtle. Uh, you know what? Yes, yeah, like I'm not we're now flipping through all the issues to look at mm-hmm. them, but yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I have a question about Rebecca. Yeah. Because Rebecca is um Lara's sponsor. And but also she is she's also a cop. And so she does have like she does have interest in Lara's vigilantism. And yeah. she's like, okay. I'll be your commissioner, Gordon. I will, I will be your connection to the inside. But like, to me, that seems, especially because of the intervention scene, like that, like Molly and Rebecca staged this intervention, but then Rebecca chooses to further enable, like Molly has to feel like super betrayed by that. Well, and they, they have the intervention, but they also kind of like pull back on the intervention. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Yeah, they undermine themselves because they go, oh, well, there is an urgent need. There is an urgent need for a vigilante, and it's got to be the person who has a vigilante problem for which we are having an intervention right now. It just seems like... It's complicated. uh, Yeah, Yeah, it is. is a very interesting character to me. Yeah, I like... I I think Rebecca is really fascinating because, like you said, she is in a weird spot on the Venn diagram. Like, she's a law enforcement officer. She's, She's Laura's sponsor. She's Molly's friend, obviously, if they kind of put this intervention together. But I think the hope with any intervention is that the target has a moment of self-realization. And I don't think that happened. Um, not, I mean, I know it didn't happen. I think Laura is driven to be the black ghost and that's, that's what we'll hopefully explore in future issues. But, you know, at one point, at what point does she look in the mirror and say, this is bad for me? Like they need that to happen before anything else. And I think Rebecca may be realizing that that hadn't happened yet figured like, well, we still have this problem to solve. So if you're not going to like self-regulate, like let's at least solve, you know, this Harrow thing that's going on. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about um, Bruce Wayne and how Bruce Wayne has never really managed to keep a relationship going and that it hurts him. Yeah. That, that, that kind of family life is something he's always wanted and he's had to sacrifice it. Yeah, but but he doesn't have to. I wish I wish he would just find a nice person to like settle down with. <laughs> there's, really a lot of, there's a lot yeah. of heroes going through Gotham right now. He could pass that off. <laughs> yeah, he could take a vacation, I think. But uh there's there's less heroes going around Creighton. And and I want to get to the issue uh of the villain, Harrow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've we've now entered uh Harrow talk. Uh, because <laughs> a hero is only as good as their villain. And right. so how did you arrive at this particular character? Yeah, I think we wanted someone visually um, intense, like obviously evoking like kind of, she's kind of like got this mime type makeup, like this very like violent, like um, 
circus character, not not so much the Joker, but kind of evoking that vibe of being the opposite number. And we wanted we wanted her to be not the most stable character, but also not falling into the tropes of insanity or maniac or crazy. Um, she's got a clear reason for being she's radicalized at some point. She mm. real she you know she realizes that the system has failed her and she needs to become something else to to do what she needs to do and um she has no filters anymore. She's kind of a darker path like what Laura maybe could have been had she become more extreme and was less precious about life and protecting others and um and I think it unsettles Laura to a great degree that, she, you know, she wants to be helpful to this person that needs help, but she also needs to stop her because she's killing people. And, you know, her origin is tied to the kinds of headlines that Laura had encountered throughout her journalistic experience. Probably wrote. Yeah. 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 And probably wrote. Yeah. Yeah. I think setting is really important to all the characters. I think you find that, Monica and I like to weave the history of Creighton into a lot of the characters. And so when we were talking about, you know, the second season, we wanted it, we wanted Harrow to very much be a product of the city, like what mm -hmm. happens to a city that goes to seed and like what happens to the people that are pulled under by it. And so Harrow is like the focus of that in many ways. And, and hopefully the mystery pays off as you read it. You don't feel like it's just like stuff that's add, you know, sometimes mysteries, the writer will add stuff at the end and you're like, is that really a clue? Or are you just kind of like speeding us along to get to the conclusion? And so we wanted to plant seeds early on. So you felt like the revelation of who Harrow was, even if it's not someone you really knew, like felt at least impactful. I, I think it definitely did. You know, uh, again, there were people that I thought it was going to yeah. be or okay. related to, and then it wasn't that. Uh, and that's always a delight when okay. you're not ahead of the story. Yeah. You want to um, surprise people. Yeah. Now, what I love about the Black Ghost as just a, a fan of comics and a fan of these particular types of stories that celebrate journalists mm -hmm. is like it does feel like we are primed for some stories where journalism is elevated a little bit in the reader's minds. Like we need to be reminded of the power yeah. of of truth tellers of narrative yeah, of, and of narratives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a journalism background. I haven't worked at a newspaper in over 15 years, but it, it's definitely a big, I believe in journalism. I believe in like, you know, reporting what's going on. And I think that's always interesting. And and I wanted to show kind of the under the hood part of it. You know, that's something I did with the Pete Fernandez novels when he's a journalist, but also to show that there's some drudgery to it. But there's also a lot of good in doing, you know, elevating the truth and, and putting the truth out there for people to kind of absorb. And that's, we always do those little vignettes where the headlines are kind of floating around Laura or she's like looking at the newspapers and like different things like the clues are coming together. And that's George's way of kind of just showing the breadth of what she does, um, because you don't want to show her like typing and like bringing the paper to her editor. Like there's a lot of mundane stuff to journalism. No but... jogging scenes. Yeah, so. yeah. I have a yeah. thing with uh, journalism movies where there's always the, the, the journalists are always running for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the musical mo motif where it's a montage. Um, we gotta yeah, get we, to the presses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think for Laura, when I, we, Monica and George and I were coming up with the character, we wanted someone to have the tools to be a detective, but not necessarily be like the steel jawed white dude ex cop. You know, we wanted it to be someone who could probably be a good vigilante, but had a long way to get there. Mm. And, you know, now thinking about it in the context of Daredevil, right? And yeah. Matt Murdock being lawyer by day, vigilante by night. The uh, 
the the complications that are created by being a journalist, uh, you know, and a person uh, going out into the night and punching bad guys. Those parallels. The worlds are way too close, and yeah. uh, and uh, she's paying and for it like immediately. The other, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's definitely some ethical issues there, and I think something. You know, one of the things we wanted to explore early on was like, what happens when a normal person decides to put on a costume and they have no sense of how to like really, you know, she has has some self-defense training, obviously, but she's not been primed for like patrolling the city and punching out bad guys. Like what happens when you thrust that person into that? And also like, how careful is she about her identity? Like now by the end of the second arc, it seems like a lot of people know she's the black ghost, a lot of people that are not good people. And so I think that'll play out in the third season if we get there. Um, because we also wanted to kind of accelerate some of the tropes of superhero vigilante stories in a more realistic way, which hopefully we succeeded at. But, you know, it's hard to keep a secret identity in this era of no secrets when like people's mm-hmm. emails are like, you know, made public and like whatever, like it's hard to keep any secrets. And I think it would be even harder for her, a relatively public person, to also be like this very famous vigilante who looks like her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She should have thought like. Before she picked a signature hairstyle, she should have really <laughs> yeah. thought about the well. Thing. She does discover the power of wig work in this. She does some yes. wig, yeah, wig that was work. a fun scene. Yeah, yeah. like uh, undercover. <laughs> I always love when detectives go in, into disguise, go in disguise, and we don't see that enough anymore. Yeah, no. alias. There's not enough yeah. alias anymore. That show was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a <laughs> good a dose show. of alias in Black Ghost. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Um. Now, uh, how how are you feeling about Black Ghost? Love it. Do you got any, Thank any you. other final questions about Black Ghost? Um, not on the tip of my tongue, but okay. I'm sure I do. Well, I was going to move into Secret Identity. Okay, move into Secret Identity. Okay. Before we get out of here, we have to talk about Secret Identity, uh, which I think of as your baby. Like, yes. It feels like your pride and joy. And as the year winds down, all these best of lists are coming out and I see it popping up on best thrillers of 2020 or 2022. Uh, it, it feels like 2020 still. Yeah. Time, uh, is, uh, time is weird. And that's got to feel great. I mean, how are you feeling now that secret identity is out in the world? People have been reading it. People have been appreciating it. I, it feels great. I mean, it feels like uh, it feels like the book. Not to get all you know, book talk about it. It feels like it has a long tail. You know, it feels like it came out in March, and so many things, especially with this twenty-four hour news cycle, just kind of get churned through, and people forget that they existed. But it's been really reassuring as we head into the end of the year to have so many like really thoughtful reviewers, like included in roundups and best of lists, like NPR. Um, Circus and book list and and it, it's been really flattering and and people get the book like people seem to understand what I was trying to do which is always it means you did your job like I evoked it properly and and people read it and kind of understood what I was trying to say um, and I, it's been flattering because it's it's such a love letter to the two things I love like mystery fiction and comics and having them blend into one and the response from both sides like the comics community I was like well are people going to really enjoy it on the comic side because it's not a comic it has comics in it, but you can't, you can't just read the comic pages and really understand what's going on. Um, but I've heard from comic fans who are like, I'm not a big mystery novel reader, but I read it because I like this and it really resonated. And from the other side, mystery readers who read novels mostly are not, who are not into comics felt like they were brought into this world. They didn't really fully know and now left the novel with some understanding and, and appreciation for the medium, which is great. What I love about a book like this is not how comic readers might flock to it, mm-hmm. but but how mystery readers and novel readers might better appreciate 
the medium of comics coming out of it and might respect yeah. the medium of comics coming out of it. It feels like a um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, 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 like it, a little sample tasty taste. Yeah, yeah, like yeah a bridge yeah. of some kind, you know, where where the, the mystery reader might then go like, oh, this Alex guy does comics too. Maybe I'll read some yeah. comics. Maybe I'll give it a shot for a, a change. Yeah, it's it's so funny. Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny because a lot of readers who were not familiar with comics didn't understand like the machinery of comics. Like, yeah, you know, especially the part where talent passes the book on to other talent. Like there's the, the key moment, I think, for the book is when Carmen... Carmen obviously knows how comics work, but the realization that they're going to run through the six scripts that she's turned in that nobody knows she's written and eventually hand this character that means so much to her to somebody else. And that's really the activation moment for her. And she's like, I have to solve this mystery because otherwise this character is gone. And I had so many people who were not comic readers say, I didn't know they did that. I didn't know like you cr created a comic and then somebody else got the keys to the car. And I was like, well... Yeah. Do I yeah. have stories for you? <laughs> like <laughs> that's like comics 101. And um, yeah, and the idea that there would be an artist, or you know, I think as readers, as casual readers who've maybe you've read an Archie comic or you've read like a superhero comic, but you're not embedded in the industry or the art form, like you don't understand that it's like it's almost like a jam, like five to ten different people working on a single issue, and and sometimes those people change, and it's there's they're beholden to so many different things like editorial oversight or writing styles and things like that. So I think people really appreciated that peek into the industry, an industry that's very different from today, but which led to what we're dealing with today. Yeah, totally. Well, you being fluent in like writing novels and also doing comics, when you have and being you know the publicity side of things yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um like do you, when you have a new idea for a story do you see clearly what the vessel for that story is going to be you go like okay this kind of story is definitely a novel and this kind of story is definitely a comic sometimes um i think with secret identity it had to be a novel because i was finishing up my pi series and i was doing the poe dameron book and i was trying to figure out well what's my next thing and I knew I loved novels that take you somewhere else, that kind of show you an industry that you didn't understand. Like Megan Abbott does this really well. She'll write a, a noir novel set in cheerleading, like Dare Me, or in gymnastics or dance. And I was like, that's so fascinating. There's got to be one with comics. Like, what if there's a murder in comics? And so I knew it was a novel. But um, like recently, I had a novel idea that I, it just didn't sync up as a novel. I started working on it as a novel. And I was like, this is a comic. Like, I want to see this visually and I want to jam with somebody else on it. And so it became, um, I reached out to an artist and I said, I have this idea and it became a comic. So I wouldn't say it's 100% out of the gate. I know what it, it's going to be, but um, usually I do. Do you find, so, you know, this? I know the answer to this question before I ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, Do you feel yes. yourself gravitating towards a format over another? Like, do you have a love over one uh like do you love comics more than books or books more than comics oh, or movies? yeah that is hard um <laughs> i guess it really depends on like the level of control i want to have which sounds like like a super villain but you know like with a novel like <laughs> secret identity was a very personal story like it has so many elements of things that i love and i wanted to really curate it and while sandy does the art for the comic sequences it was not a traditional like comic assignment where we created the character together. Like I came to him, I said, this is the links. This is kind of what I want her to look like. And this is what the project is. And, and he's such a historian and comic book nut that he really came at it from the best perspective, but that was still very much like my world. Whereas with comics, you 
in an ideal situation, you come to someone at ground zero and you're like, let's do this together and let's create this thing together. And you have to be open to that back and forth. And some, some ideas I'm not as open to it is my point, I guess. The reason I asked the question is because I began as a movie maniac. Like my mm. entire childhood was like movies are the only thing that I'm interested in. And then I discovered novels and then I discovered comics. And then from comics, I went back into novels and movies. And in college, I became like a big movie maniac again. Oh, nice. But I, but I find myself today really wanting to be a champion for comics. Obviously, you know, at least you I guys are. This- yeah this podcast but when i read a book like secret identity it feels like uh it it feels like an activation Mm -hmm. like it feels Mm -hmm. like something that could trigger something in a reader to look at the medium of comics and realize how right now i mean comics are are, is i'm not i don't want to make it sound like comics are like in a bad place or anything like that because they're not tons of readers you know, selling more comics and bookstores than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like with media and movies being the predominant media uh, attention seekers, and that's not even true. It's probably video games. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the comic book movies getting so much attention and they're the comics that they sprung from don't. Mm-hmm. When you get a book like Secret Identity, it's like a nice slap to the reader. Like, look at this art form that's going on here. It is its own unique art form. That's a really rambling defensive setup for a question. <laughs> but what, what's the question part? Well, <laughs> I don't know what the hell the question is. I like I just wanted to rant there for a second. And no, I, I think you're right. I think I very purposely chose the era because I wanted to show a time where comics were not as prevalent in the pop culture. You know, it's I, I use this, I say this a lot, but there, you know, when I was a kid, the idea of an Ant-Man movie or a Moon Knight yeah. show or a Peacemaker show was like, never, what? never going to happen. Like I would read articles in Wizard about how there would never be a Spider-Man movie because the rights were lost. You know, like I was like, comic book movies were so far down the line. And so now today, this, you know, these riches of media, um, literal and figurative, it's, it's really fascinating to see. But I wanted to show a time where comics didn't have that kind of reach and also where the creators didn't have that same sense that we do today where we're like well this is my ip and i i want to own it because i see the potential for media and things like that or just to have control um where creators back then were really just doing a job like you know if you were writing you know the defenders you wrote your scripts you turned them in and created characters while writing those stories and um and that was that you never really thought okay well maybe down the line i'll get some royalties for creating you know the plant man or whatever there is a plant man but you know what i mean like <laughs> um where you didn't think about it in those terms maybe you should have but um you know hindsight's twenty twenty. so i really wanted to show a very different comic book industry and kind of show the passion that these people had even apart from the financial and creative stuff they were just crafting these stories because they loved doing it and and they knew it was a job but it was really fun for them i think also when we get so dedicated to one medium like you forget that these other mediums like exist. Like right. growing up, I didn't read comics at all. Oh uh, yeah. Huh. It, it just, um, it like, there was just no in for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I didn't just like, I didn't have comics thrust upon me until I was like in college. And then I was like, oh my goodness, there's this whole new world of all of this 
other stuff that's happening where where I like I knew there were Spider-Man movies and I knew the concept of like like I read comic strips but I just well that's the thing is like I feel like the superhero movies are so dominant that people think that comics are superhero stories Mm -hmm. right and what's great about what you're doing right is you're showing that like there's different like there's a comic for every kind of reader yeah, yeah. there's a like comics is a medium yeah it's right. not, not a, genre. a genre yeah 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 which is a fight that's also going on with animation right now uh-huh. uh and, and i i think it's a it's a long fight that comics have been struggling with as well yeah. and also i think a lot of people forget and we struggle with this in the prose world but a genre is not a box you know it's it's a marketing term it's something that a publicity and marketing department has decided to file your book under it doesn't mean you have to write a certain way like you know secret identity has been described in different ways it's a mystery it's a thriller it's a historic it's historical fiction it's graphic novels it's all it can be all those things like your book and i think too many writers get caught up in the what is my book before they even write the book like just mm-hmm. write the book and then somebody who's probably more capable at it than you are will figure out how to shelve it and you will have feedback but just write the book you're passionate about yeah. yeah, and too many readers get caught up in what genre yeah, yeah. is a book. Is this Entirely YA? Is this marketing? I'm like, yeah, like, uh, like I don't like one of my like pet peeves is when you t- you look at the marketing for a book and they say it's this existing property plus this existing property, right. and I'm like, why would I want to read that? I can read those, read, read those two properties. Yeah, right. right yeah, I, I always tell. New. I teach this class off and on at lit reactor and it's like a pitching class it teaches students how to pitch comics and i say don't use the comp as the pitch like use it to punctuate your great idea like make it the period of your sentence that you've crafted because if your pitch is just like it's european vacation meets blade runner that's interesting but like you said like that is interesting (laughs) yeah but i could watch those things already like those things exist so where does your voice come in to like accentuate that Mm. yeah i try to read books first before the marketing yeah, yeah, yeah. I never Lisa read that cover avoids, copy. Oh, yeah, Lisa will not read the back of books. Uh, she'll avoid trailers, and I'm the opposite. Yeah. I am the prisoner of the. Oh, marketing. really? I love yeah. going in blind. I like just not. I I like That's having her. the broad idea of what it is, but not because then I feel like it's spoiled. Like trailers spoil movies now. They this do. Is, also, I want to come up with my interpretation of the story. Like I yeah. like to go. Like, what do I think the story's about? The story is about. Uh, you know, Lara and Molly, will they make it? Yeah, will they? I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the delight. Lara deserves good influences on her life. Well, you yes. were reading Blood Oath and you knew, did you know it was vampires? Because there was the moment when you were reading it, you turned a page and you're like, oh, vampires. Uh, yeah. Oh, good, Vampires. Good. You, uh, when, we, when we saw you at New York, uh-huh. um, you mentioned that you were doing a vampire bootleg book. And that, and I p- filed that away in the back of my mind, and completely like forgot that I had filed that away until I was reading this book. But oh, I'm also weirdly in like a vampire fiction place right now. That's like literally all I'm reading. It's like all Anne my audio books. Like, nice. <laughs> yeah, like it starts with uh, like I am a, a Twilight apologist. Mm-hmm. I love Twilight. <laughs> I mean, they're popular for a reason. Like they're people po- are reading them. They're they're adorable. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So like I'm re- real now. Yeah. I am. Yeah. It's this out is, there now. We're in the weeds now. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. all going. Yeah. Um. 
but yeah, so so I've been in a real vampire place. So I love watching people go go like, well, what's the piece of lore that I'm going to break? Yeah, you know, I don't want to get spoilery about your book, but you're like, okay, this thing that's true in pretty much every vampire story is not true in this vampire story. Yeah, and, I just and that love was that kind of thing. Yeah, Rob is a big horror reader, and he was like, well, we should definitely like break this rule, and I was fine with it because I, I like that because you're honoring the character, the mythos of what a vampire is but you're tweaking it and making it your version. Like this is your vampire take. Yes. And it's, you know, I didn't want to, sometimes you see like tweaks on vampires and their initial reaction is to disparage other versions, which I find like, like kind of lame, like just do your thing and it can be good and it can stand next to another. Like you don't have to rip on yeah. sparkling vampires, you know, like mm-hmm. you can, all, we can all coexist. There's so many yeah. vampire stories. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, I, and I also have that is a huge pet peeve where you're reading a work and then you realize, oh, they're just taking a dump on another work that I also sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you limit your opportunities. Like, why do you, ha- I don't know. I, I try to stay positive overall, especially like externally. Like, it's just like a drag to just be dunking on other people for no reason. Yeah. Uh, well, you're definitely a positive voice out there in the world. Uh, I try. Whether we follow you on social media or whether we find it through fiction, it, you know, you do put out a lot of uh, positivity. Thank you. Yeah, I try to, especially on, you know, a place like Twitter, which can be a true uh, hellscape sometimes. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. yeah. We try to do the same. Yeah. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Oh, this is great. Chatting a little longer than we said we were going to chat with you. We tricked oh, you. Oh, it was just like we were hanging out. It was <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, it, we had such a good time with Blood Oath and Black Ghost and Secret Identity and you know, and Poe Dameron. We didn't even talk oh, yeah. Poe Dameron. Um, but oh, Poe Dameron. Uh, somebody at New York Comic Con got Poe Dameron signed and then got Oscar Isaac to sign Dude, the book. That's so cool. I think I told wild. you, I think I, maybe I yeah. saw you like right after it happened. I was like yeah. on cloud nine. That, <laughs> that uh, It was wild. That is wild. I love that Oscar Isaac is out there. Do one doing a con like New York yeah. and also doing comics with Christian Ward. And stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, then and he signed it. Po. A guitar and singing. Did he sign it? Poe? Yeah. He signed <laughs> Oscar cool. Isaac. Poe. <laughs> How awesome is that? That oh, was man. cool. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, for having me. This was cool. Yeah, thank you for hanging out. I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. And you as well. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And Lisa, I don't think you can hear Alex outwardly dismissing your love of Twilight. I I think he accepted it well. I'm probably projecting. Defensive again. Though we were doing this in a Zoom type situation, so I could see the openness drain from his face (laughs) and the diplomat take over. I I think you're being, again, a little sensitive. I don't think it was that extreme. Uh, Yeah. But also, here you are now declaring on Comic Book Couples Counseling that you are a Twihard. You love Twilight. I do. And you have now done this conversation with the Comics Collective, Anne and Lexi, talking about your love for Twilight. And that's going to drop in our feed. That's going to drop in their feed. We're going to put that love out there in the universe that's going to be on all of our social media (laughs) platforms you're going to be known as someone who loves twilight and now that that's out there i think you really just have to embrace it delete it all just delete it no i will not (laughs) yikes 
And that is such a wonderful place to end this episode. Thanks again to Alex Segura for coming on finally to talk Blood Oath and the Black Ghost. Can't wait to have him back. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about Secret Identity, but I think we could have an even longer conversation about that book. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us today. We have another Creator Corner conversation right around the corner. We will be talking to Meredith McLaren and Kelly Thompson, the creators of Black Cloak, the new Image comic series, which hits stands Wednesday. So get to your local comic book shop, pick up that first issue, and meet us back here at the end of the week so we can chat with Kelly and Meredith about that comic. It's so good. It's got world building, like, coming out its wazoo. The other comic that came out this week is Lazarus Planet number one, or Lazarus Planet Alpha number one, from writer Mark Wade. And we've actually just finished having a conversation with him about this giant DC Comics universe. And that'll be coming out next week. Really proud of that conversation. We've had Mark on the podcast before talking about the history of science fiction from humanoids. But now here he is, and we're talking Batman. We're talking superheroes. This is everything you want to talk to Mark Wade about. Yeah, I suggest listening to that episode after you've had your morning coffee <laughs> because we come in a little excited, yeah, a little we hot. We come in very strong with Mark <laughs> Wade, but it's it's a it's a true delightful uh, chat. And then, of course. Our sessions are returning. We're going to finish our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles conversation with The Last Ronin. And The Lost Year's Last Ronin comics are coming out at the end of January, so perfect timing for us. Very excited, but also a little sad to end our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles conversation. Hopefully we will return to the brothers sometime in the future. But for now, The Last Ronin is going to be our big Ninja Turtles episode. You've kind of already spoiled on Twitter what our next couple session is going to be? I I have, yeah. So if you're paying attention to Twitter, you know what it is. Should we tell them what our next session is going to be after the Turtles? Let's not. Let's Let's make sure that they're following us on Twitter. CBCC Podcast. That's right. The other thing we need to promote is our screening of Howard the Duck, on the 29th of January at 4 o'clock at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, done in sponsorship with the Eisner-nominated comic book store for Color Fantasies. We are so excited to screen the first Marvel movie, Howard the Duck. We want to see you there. We've, we've got all kinds of things to entice you. We're going to give away pins. We're going to give away comics. There are going to be prizes and trivia. Yeah, we have the adult, very adult magazine, Howard the Duck comics to give away. We have some classic all ages Howard the Duck comics to give away. We're even giving away one of the Marvel Legends What If Howard the Duck action figures. Everyone attending will get a Howard the Duck for President pin. Yeah, like it's going to be so much fun. You can give us high fives too. Yeah, we'll take high fives. We're giving those away. Giving them away? We're giving away? I'm taking them. You're taking I'm high fives? stealing high fives from everyone who shows up to Howard the Duck. Ooh, protect your palms. Okay, Brad, while we were recording, I actually downloaded the entire Beniculus series Whoa. 
on audiobooks, so I'm really eager to get something else in my ears besides you. Oh. Where can I listeners send their words of affirmation to you? My, my, my. Uh, send <laughs> all words of affirmation to at Mouthwork on all social medias. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation? To you. I'm always accepting words of affirmation on Instagram, Twitter, and Hive. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive Social at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars in Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Blah. That's like a <laughs> that's like a vampire sound, right? Blah. I don't even know where that's from. Blah. Isn't that the count? Oh yeah! Blah! 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 I feel like you're doing it wrong. Blah! 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 Is that it? <laughs> it's like a blue. No, now I don't like it anymore. <laughs>